Good evening and welcome to our Bible study. What a blessing to be with all of you. Uh, we are broadcasting tonight from our New Life Ministry studio in Ohio. And this is courtesy of Pastor David Slentz and his family. And we're going to be with them for the rest of the week. So we're having a blessed time here and nice to hear all of your voices. We are continuing our Bible study, which we have entitled Reasons to Believe. And we've now come to part six in this Bible study and a part that I believe is extremely important, uh, which we have called Fulfilled Prophecy. And we have been looking at this the past several weeks and will probably do so for a few more weeks, even after this session. This is an extremely important aspect of Bible study and we're really in no hurry to finish this. I want to take our time and really look carefully at a number of scriptures because this is such a powerful testimony to who God is. And I want to read uh, once again a couple of scriptures from the book of Isaiah that we have started the past two weeks with. Just I love these portions of scripture and they speak very powerfully to this whole subject of why fulfilled prophecy is so important for us as Christians to know and understand, because God himself refers to it as one of the strong proofs or evidences that he is the one and the only God. There is no other God that can tell the end from the beginning and predict future events hundreds of years before they take place with 100% accuracy. And because God is eternal, he actually dwells outside of time. He created time in the beginning, but for him, the end and the beginning are all the same. So when he tells us something is going to happen 800 years from now, it's as good as done because he sees that every word of God that is spoken is watched over and fulfilled. So I want to start again tonight looking in Isaiah chapter 44, and we're going to read again verses 6 to 8. And let me just again emphasize that Isaiah had a difficult challenge. He had to prophesy at a time when there was a great deal of idolatry. Even the people of God had begun to worship all kinds of false gods, all sorts of idols. And so Isaiah's task was to call them back to the one true living God. And so many of these passages if you read the entire context, God was really rebuking them for having taken their focus off of him and began to put their trust and their confidence in man-made things rather than the maker of all things. And I think you'll see that in these two portions of Scripture that we're going to reread. Isaiah 44, verses 6 to 8. This is what the Lord says, Israel's King and Redeemer, the Lord Almighty. I am the first, 
and I am the last. Apart from me, there is no God. Who then is like me? Let him proclaim it, let him declare and lay out before me what has happened since I established my ancient people and what is yet to come. Yes, let him foretell what will come. Do not tremble, do not be afraid. Did I not proclaim this and foretell it long ago? You are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me? No, there is no other rock. I know not one. And we saw in some other portions here in Isaiah also that God himself appeals to this ability that he uniquely possesses of being able to tell what the future holds. And he challenges all the false gods and all the idols. Please come forward and tell us what the future holds. And of course, no man, no other God, little g, can do that because only the true and living God knows the future. And the next passage I want to read is my famous, my favorite out of this whole bunch, because this is where God says he makes known the end from the beginning. That's a little different from knowing the end from the beginning. Certainly God knows the whole picture from beginning to end. But in this next passage, we'll see he likes to make these things known to us ahead of time so that when they come to pass, we will fear and tremble and fall down and worship him who brought it all to pass. Isaiah 46 from verse 9 to 11. Remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. I made known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say, my purpose will stand, and I will do all that I please. From the east I summon a bird of prey, from a far-off land a man to fulfill my purpose. What I have said, that will I bring about. What I have planned, that will I do. Now, God has plans. I think we all understand that. And his plans are actually eternal. And so he has, down through time, made known certain portions of his plans to us. And he's done that through various prophets. And God, as we saw in some previous studies, was very careful to see that a lot of those words of the prophets were recorded for us in what we now call the scriptures, the Holy Bible. So we can read some of these predictions that were made hundreds and hundreds of years ago and in many cases, predictions that were made hundreds of years before they came to pass, predictions that could have never been lucky guesses. There's just no way that these things could have been randomly predicted, and then with such perfect accuracy, they all come to pass. So, this whole subject of fulfilled prophecy 
is a very important part of our toolbox. Remember, we are looking at how to be prepared to give an answer for our faith. Why are we believers? And how can we communicate that faith with others? And that's why we've chosen the title for this whole series, Reasons to Believe. Believing in God, believing in the Bible, believing in Jesus Christ, these are reasonable things. And God has given us many infallible proofs to help us in our faith to know that we're not just blindly believing in some doctrine or some religious system, but we're believing in truth that has been corroborated down through the ages, through witnesses, through fulfilled prophecies, through many, many different types of evidences. And it it really bothers me whenever I hear even a Christian talking about blind faith. Our faith is not blind. We are trusting in a living God who has given all kinds of evidences, both through the physical creation, he's revealed his power and his wisdom, and through the scriptures and through prophecy. Now, we saw last week and the week before last that one important area of prophecy has to deal with nations. Nations do not just come and go. They don't just happen. We saw in Jeremiah and in Isaiah that God is the one who raises up a nation, and God is the one who uproots and puts down a nation. And many, many prophecies, we don't even have the time to begin to scratch the surface of all of the prophecies that are in the Bible concerning different nations. And many of these prophecies are now history. They were predictions when they were first given to the prophets, but they've now come to pass. And so we have the privilege of being able to look back now and see the prediction that was made and how absolutely and perfectly that prophecy came to pass. And by the way, the word history uh, is an interesting play on words. I like to consider history as his story. The whole history of man is really God's story. From Genesis 1-1, the creation of the heaven and the earth, all the way to the very end, it's God's story being written and God's story being played out. And many times we think world events and things that are going on in different nations, they're just haphazard, chaotic events. But the scriptures reveal something totally different, that God is sovereignly in control of the rise and fall of every nation. And I think we're going to see that even more graphically tonight as we move along in this study. But we first looked at the nation of Israel. And this is an amazing story. The birth of the nation, how the nation came to be uh, a powerful, prosperous, wealthy world power, and how 
After repeated warnings from God, they went through long seasons of judgment. But even in those seasons of judgment, God spoke through prophets concerning future plans that he had for the nation. And if you missed last week's study, I would strongly recommend looking at the notes and getting the audio recording and going through that, because it's a powerful witness what God has done with the nation of Israel. And by the way, if you're just joining us for the first time, all of the notes and all of the audio recordings for these Bible studies are available through our ministry website. That's new-ministries-I'm sorry, new-life-ministries.org new-life-ministries.org and then you can follow the menus there to look for messages and the notes and recordings, etc. And we saw last week that way back in Genesis 12, God prophesied through Abraham that he was going to make of Abraham a great nation. And indeed, as you trace through the book of Genesis and come to the opening chapters of Exodus, by that time, Israel had become a very numerous people and a very powerful nation. And in Genesis 15, we saw that God predicted to Abraham that not only were they going to become a great nation, but they were going to be taken into a foreign land and made slaves in a foreign country, and they would be slaves in a foreign country for 400 years. And we come to the book of Exodus, and we see that exactly as God predicted through Abraham, the children of Israel ended up in Egypt because of Joseph and the whole story of how Joseph went down into Egypt. And after 430 years, their slavery came to an end. They were delivered out of Egypt through the blood of the Passover lamb. And just as God had predicted more than 200 years earlier, he brought them out, brought them back to their land, and then he again began to prosper them and cause them to grow and become extremely numerous. But he also warned them that if they forsook God, God would judge them and that they would be scattered throughout the world and they would again go into captivity. Well, we saw that that's exactly what happened. And in the time of Jeremiah, it was again predicted that they would go into captivity and the exact length of time was again given this time, 70 years that they would be in exile from their land, in a strange land, into Babylon. And at the end of that 70 years, God would bring them out and bring them back to their land. Well, we saw last week, that's exactly what happened. And the most amazing part of that whole story is the key person that God used at the end of their 70-year exile to ensure that the word of Jeremiah's prophecy came to pass was a man named Cyrus, 
the king of Persia. And Babylon was conquered by Persia, and the new king of Persia was a man named Cyrus. And in his very first year as king of Persia, he issued a decree and a proclamation allowing all of the Jewish exiles to leave and to go back to Jerusalem, back to the land of Israel, and back to rebuild their city and their temple. Well, by no coincidence, it was in the 70th year of their captivity that all of those changes took place. And we are told in Second Chronicles that this happened exactly 70 years after they first went into captivity, and I'm quoting from Second Chronicles, until the 70 years were completed in fulfillment of the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout the realm and to put it in writing, this is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any one of his people among you, may the Lord his God be with him and let him go up. And as we saw last time, what's even more amazing about this prophecy is the prophet Isaiah prophesied 200 years before Cyrus was even born and called him by name, gave his job description, and gave extensive detail in Isaiah chapters 44 and 45. We're not going to go back there tonight, but you can... Look it up again yourself. Called him by name and explained exactly what Cyrus was going to do to fulfill the word and the plan of the Lord. And after the 70-year captivity, everything happened just as Jeremiah and Isaiah had predicted. And Israel came back to their land. They rebuilt their temple. They rebuilt the walls in the city of Jerusalem. You can read about all that in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Fast forward more than 400 years, coming now to the time of Christ. As Jesus was nearing the end of his life on earth, he was coming into Jerusalem. He knew it was time for him to go to the cross. He prophesied once again over Jerusalem that there was a day coming soon, where not one stone would be left upon another in Jerusalem. That would have been around A.D. 33. And at that time, it seemed very unlikely and very improbable that such a prediction could come to pass. Because Israel had a glorious temple, they didn't have any real enemies that were uh, threatening to burn the city to the ground or destroy their temple or any of such things. So it seemed rather an odd prophecy that Jesus gave. However, in A.D. 70, 
just 40 years after the prophecy was given by Jesus, Titus, the emperor of Rome, invaded Jerusalem, and to a T, every word that Christ had spoken 40 years earlier was fulfilled. Jerusalem was completely leveled to the ground, and the historian Josephus, who was a first century Jewish historian, you find in his writings that literally not one stone was left upon another in Jerusalem after Titus and the Roman armies invaded Jerusalem. From A.D. 70 until 1948, the Jews wandered throughout the four quarters of the earth, just as God had predicted. They no longer had a land, they no longer had a temple, and yet, amazingly, for almost 2,000 years, the Jewish people remained an intact identity. And we sometimes still hear the term wandering Jews. Well, they indeed wander all over the earth until it finally reached its climax during the Holocaust and World War II, where Hitler uh, and his armies exterminated nearly six million Jews. And his goal, of course, was to completely exterminate the Jewish race. He was not successful in doing so, and miraculously, again, in fulfillment of prophecy, and we study these at the end of last session, in Isaiah 11, God had spoken that there was a day coming when he would reach out his hand a second time to bring back the exiles of Israel to their land. Well, if there's a second time, that means there's a first time. And the first time was when he brought them back from their 70-year Babylonian captivity. But this second time occurred in 1948, where miraculously and suddenly Israel became a nation, and they have continued to be a nation back in their land since 1948. It's an amazing story, just an amazing uh, accumulation of many, many prophecies and predictions that God made over hundreds and hundreds of years. Every single one of them has been fulfilled. However, and this is where we concluded last time. It's, it's, it's beyond the scope of this study to even begin to look at many, many prophecies concerning the nation of Israel that are yet to be fulfilled. And some Christians get this thing wrong. God is not done with Israel yet. Make no mistake. He is not finished with Israel, and if you read Romans 9, 10, and 11 in the New Testament, I think you'll see clearly that God still has a lot of unfinished business with Israel, and many prophecies and many promises that were made as far back as Abraham that are yet to be fulfilled in these last days. So keep your eye on Israel, because there's still more to come in this realm of fulfilled prophecy. But I want to move on to uh, a different part of this study, 
continuing to look at nations, but just briefly, I want to look at other Gentile nations. And we've looked now at the nation of Israel. The Bible has a lot to say about a number of other nations also, their future, their destiny, very detailed predictions were made about a number of these nations. We normally refer to them as Gentile nations, but the word Gentile actually comes from the Hebrew word goyim, which when translated just means nations. So in the Old Testament, the mindset of a Jew was there's Israel and then there are the nations because Israel was God's people. They were God's nation. So any non-Israel people or nation, they were lumped together and referred to as the Goyim, the Gentiles. And it's rather amazing to see how even though these were not specifically God's people, as Israel was, God had a lot to say about these other nations. And we're just going to touch the surface here to introduce this subject, but extensive and detailed prophecies are recorded in the scriptures concerning a number of these nations, including Egypt, Babylon, Edom, Philistia, Assyria, Tyre and Sidon, Moab, and I could go on. You probably recognize some of those names from your Bible readings. Some of them you may know, like Egypt. Some of them you may not know where the modern counterpart to that particular nation might be. And without exception, each prediction that was made concerning these nations, even though they may have taken hundreds of years to come to pass with pinpoint 100% accuracy, every prophecy was fulfilled. Let's just look at a couple of these very briefly. Everybody knows where Egypt is. Uh, basically, the Egypt that we read about in the Bible is the same area in Africa as today's modern Egypt. And Although we hear quite a bit about Egypt in the news, it certainly isn't in any way, shape, or form the world power that it once was. And there was a time in antiquity where Egypt, together with Babylon, were two of the greatest world powers on the globe, Egypt and Babylon. And in ancient times... Uh, a city called Memphis was the capital of Lower Egypt, and another city called Thebes was the capital of All Egypt. And both Jeremiah and Ezekiel prophesied their utter and absolute destruction centuries before it occurred. And we don't have time to look these up. They're in your notes, uh, but if you want to look in Jeremiah 46 and also in Ezekiel chapter 30, there are extensive prophecies, predictions concerning uh, what was about to happen to the nation of Egypt. Babylon, we know, 
was a very powerful nation. It was Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon that invaded Jerusalem during the days of Jeremiah and destroyed the city, burned the temple to the ground, killed many of the Jews and took many of them, including Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, as prisoners to the land of Babylon. However, both Jeremiah and Daniel predicted the collapse of this great world empire, arguably the first, what we would call a world empire. And we're going to look more at that a little later in tonight's Bible study, but in Jeremiah 51, Jeremiah predicted the utter destruction of this great world power. And at the time a lot of these predictions were made, I'm sure people thought, now, this prophet must be crazy. These things could never take place. This is such a powerful country. And, you know, let me just again make a side note. Those of us who live in the United States, uh, for many, many decades, the United States has been a world power. And I'm sure many have imagined that we're a world power that could never be reduced to a weaker nation. Uh, I would argue that we need to look more closely at Scripture because far greater world powers than the United States have come and gone. And we need to humble ourselves and seek God earnestly in these days in which we live because no nation is exempt from God's eye. And as we saw in Jeremiah 18, God can set up a nation and he can uproot another one. And he can do it in a day. He can do it very, very quickly. Other nations that we find in Old Testament prophecy that were once very powerful nations that today you'd be hard-pressed to even figure out where they were or if they even have a remnant on the earth. They were just completely obliterated. Nations like Edom and Philistia, extensive prophecies in the Old Testament about their demise. Assyria was a great world power. Uh, you may not recognize that immediately, but the capital of Assyria was Nineveh. And you may remember it was Jonah who prophesied to the great city of Nineveh that in 40 days God was going to destroy the whole place. But they humbled themselves, they fasted and prayed, and God repented of the destruction that he had planned for Nineveh. Tyre and Sidon, that were great, powerful trade centers, part of Phoenicia, Moab, and I could go on listing these nations. The point in all of this is, if you really want to study these and then compare them to actual world history, you'll see time and time again, God did exactly what he predicted because he makes known the end from the beginning. But I want to conclude tonight's session with one of the most amazing 
Old Testament prophecies that gives us a foreview of literally centuries of world history in one single picture. And it's found in Daniel chapter 2. This was not a dream that God gave Daniel. It was actually a dream that God gave King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon who had destroyed Jerusalem and brought Daniel and some of the other Jews back to Babylon as exiles. And you may remember the story of Daniel. He had an amazing gift that God gave him to interpret dreams. And so the king had this dream. He didn't know what the dream meant. And word had gotten around that this man, Daniel, knew how to interpret dreams. So Daniel is called in, and he gives King Nebuchadnezzar the interpretation of his dream. You can read the whole thing in Daniel chapter 2. I'm just going to pick out the part of it where Daniel gives the interpretation of the dream to King Nebuchadnezzar. And we pick it up in Daniel 2, starting at verse 31. And I'm going to read quite a lengthy portion here, starting at verse 31. He says, You looked, O king, and there before you stood a large statue. By the way, Nebuchadnezzar didn't even tell the dream to Daniel. Daniel is now retelling the dream first and then interpreting it, just so Nebuchadnezzar has no doubt that this is God's interpretation and God's message to him. You looked, O king, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were broken to pieces at the same time and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace, but the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. Now, Daniel is going to interpret this vision or dream of this statue. <clears throat> Excuse me, this statue. This was the dream, and now we will interpret it to the king. You, O king, are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. By the way, notice, great kings, great leaders, kings, presidents, prime ministers, where do they get their power? The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. Verse 38, in your hands 
He has placed mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them all. You are the head of gold. So we now know the interpretation of the first part of this dream. This statue with a head of gold, the head of gold represents Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire, a great world power. You are that head of gold. After you, another kingdom will rise, inferior to yours. Next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything, and as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. Just as you saw that the feet and toes were partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom. Yet it will have some of the strength of iron in it, even as you saw iron mixed with clay. As the toes were partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands, a rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. Note those words. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. So, no doubt about it, this is a prophecy. It's an elaborate prediction of future events that would actually take centuries to play out. But in one single dream, God gives a panoramic view of hundreds and hundreds of years of world history, starting with the empire of Babylon of which Nebuchadnezzar was the king. He's the one who has seen this dream, and Daniel is now telling him what the whole thing means. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true, and the interpretation is trustworthy. Now, when Daniel spoke these words to Nebuchadnezzar, this was a prophecy. When you and I read this today, it's a history lesson. This is exactly what world history has shown us. The kingdom of Babylon 
was eventually conquered by the Medo-Persian Empire. And by the way, that wasn't by any accident because we already saw last time that King Cyrus, the first king of Persia, had to take power so that he could issue the decree to fulfill Isaiah's prophecy, to fulfill Jeremiah's word, and to send the Jewish people back to Jerusalem to restore their temple and to end their 70-year captivity. So Babylon, the head of gold, would eventually be replaced by a second kingdom, the silver kingdom. The chest and arms of silver represents the Medo-Persian Empire. That was followed by a third empire represented by the belly and thighs of bronze. World history bears these things out that this was the Greek Empire under the leadership of Alexander the Great. The Greek Empire was eventually overwhelmed and replaced by the legs of iron, which is the Roman Empire. And there's something very interesting that's happening in this whole dream. You'll notice we're going from gold to silver to bronze and finally to iron and then iron mixed with clay. There's a decrease in value. We're going from gold to silver to bronze, etc. So there's a lowering in the value or the quality of each one of these kingdoms. However, each successive kingdom is becoming more powerful and a stronger kind of a kingdom until finally you come to the Roman Empire, the, the legs of iron that would smash everything. Go back to verse 40 if you're following. Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything. As iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all of the others. Now, those four parts of this prophecy have already been fulfilled. This is world history. Babylon, Medo-Persian Empire, Greek Empire, Roman Empire. The rest of it is yet to be fulfilled. And this is the amazing thing about Daniel the prophet. A lot of his prophecies have now been fulfilled some of them are last days prophecies that have not yet come to pass. And most Bible scholars and teachers understand that the feet of iron and clay is a reference to the coming Antichrist's global dictatorship that's going to be set up in the last days after the removal of the church in the rapture during the seven-year tribulation period, he will set up this kingdom of iron and clay. And then finally, we saw there's a rock 
that comes and smashes all the other kingdoms. And Daniel gave the interpretation of that rock. It's Christ and the eternal kingdom of God. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end. But it will itself endure forever. None of these other kingdoms were eternal. They were temporary kingdoms, even though they were very powerful and they may have lasted for centuries of time, they were not eternal kingdoms. But there is an eternal kingdom that is on the way that will replace all of these other kingdoms. It's called the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Christ. And it will remain forever and forever. So, this is an amazing prophecy that God gave through Daniel in interpreting this dream of Nebuchadnezzar's, which basically outlined human history for hundreds and hundreds of years from the time that Daniel was speaking these things looking forward. And it's yet another amazing testimony that this certainly couldn't have just been good luck that Daniel happened to guess this and happened to get the prediction right. Uh, no one could have predicted the fall of Babylon, but it happened in a single day. The Medo-Persians conquered the Babylonians, and you actually read about that later on in the book of Daniel, when uh, Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, Belshazzar, was feasting and partying and making a mockery of God and using the golden vessels that had been stolen from God's temple in Jerusalem to have his parties in Babylon. And you remember that's when the hand began to write on the wall. And once again, they had to call Daniel in to interpret the handwriting on the wall because they couldn't even read the message that God was giving them. And Daniel's interpretation of the handwriting to Belshazzar was, you've been weighed in the balances and you've been found wanting. And the amazing thing about that story, you come to the end of Daniel chapter 5, even as God's finger was writing on the wall, we find that the Medo-Persian army was surrounding Belshazzar's palace. And that very night, the kingdom of Babylon fell, the head of gold was smashed, and the next part, the chest of, uh, of silver, the chest and arms of silver representing the Medo-Persian empire was already being fulfilled before Daniel's very eyes. And that, of course, was the catalyst that brought about the end to Israel's captivity and enabled them to go back to Jerusalem and to rebuild their city, rebuild their temple. I'm going to conclude there tonight because we still have a lot of ground to cover, and I just want to introduce where we want to begin next time. And this is a very, very powerful part 
of this study in fulfilled prophecy. And definitely the most important part, not that any of the, these other parts are unimportant, but the most important aspect that we need to come to when we're talking about fulfilled prophecy is what we normally refer to as messianic prophecies. Prophecies found in the Old Testament concerning a coming Messiah who would be a savior, who would be a deliverer, who would be God's chosen servant, who would be God's anointed one. And we're going to look at over 60 prophecies. And trust me, those aren't all of them. There are at least 90 messianic prophecies from the Old Testament that are quoted by New Testament writers over in the New Testament. 90 of these prophecies are quoted and used in reference to Jesus Christ to show how he fulfilled every single one of these prophecies that he is indeed the Messiah, the Chosen One, the Anointed One. And we will literally start in Genesis and go right through the Old Testament. And actually, there are probably close to 300 prophecies in the Old Testament, all of which speak about various aspects of this coming one, the coming Messiah. And with great specificity and with minute detail, God predicted where he would be born, how he would be born, where he would grow up, how he would live, how he would die, all these different aspects of Messiah's life would be predicted hundreds of years ahead of time. And once we finish looking at all those, uh, we're going to just take a little look at the mathematical probabilities that all of these prophecies could have just been lucky guesses. In other words, is it even possible that Jesus could have fulfilled every single one of these predictions hundreds of years after they were made and yet not be the Messiah? I think you'll see that it's beyond absurd to even entertain the thought that all of these prophecies that Jesus fulfilled could not indicate that he is indeed the Son of God, the Savior of the world, the Anointed One, the Chosen Servant that God raised up to bring salvation, not only to Israel, but to all of the nations of the earth. Let us pray tonight. Father, what an awesome God you are. Lord, the deeper we study your word, the further we look into these things, the more amazed we are at who you are and what you have done. Lord, how amazing is your word. 
It is flawless. It is perfect. It is infallible. And when you make predictions, they come to pass with 100% accuracy and precision. And Lord, you have done this for a reason. As we read tonight in Isaiah, you do this so that we will know that you are God and besides you, there is no other. Lord, we thank you that we can trust in your word. We can trust in every promise, every prediction, even things that are yet to take place in the future. We can know with absolute certainty and assurance that as you told the prophet Jeremiah, you are watching over your word to perform it. And heaven and earth will pass away before the words of God can pass away. Lord, bless each one listening tonight, those that may listen in days to come through this recording. God, I pray that their faith would be strengthened. I pray that there would be no doubt in our hearts and minds that Jesus is indeed the Son of the living God, the Messiah of Israel, the chosen one that was spoken of by so many prophets, so many prophecies that predicted his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, and his eternal kingdom. God, what a privilege that we can be a part of this. We thank you. We pray your protection now over each and every one. Bless us and make us a blessing. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen.